The Keep Birth Wild podcast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and custodians of the land, sky and waters on which this project is produced, and we pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. We extend this respect to all First Nations people on whose country we live, birth and raise children. We acknowledge the ongoing leadership, resilience and commitment of First Nations people who continue to fight for their right to safe and culturally appropriate experiences of pregnancy, birth and postpartum, and we commit to continuing to explore our own role in that journey. Lastly, we honour and celebrate the ancient birthing knowledge and practices that have existed on this country for thousands of years. May this wisdom continue to nurture life for many generations to come. Welcome to the Keep Birth Wild podcast. My name is Indy and through this series I'll be speaking to women who plan to birth their babies at home. Join me to hear home birth mothers sharing their stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Hi everyone, I hope you had a beautiful Christmas day yesterday and enjoyed spending some time with loved ones you might not have seen very much this year. In this episode, Michelle shares the story of her pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding journey with her son, Ollie. Michelle has polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, and having been told that she may find it difficult to conceive, she was quite surprised when she fell pregnant really quickly. Michelle's pregnancy was very straightforward, and she tells a beautiful story about how she celebrated and honoured her pregnancy at each stage to help her connect with her baby and honour her transition to motherhood. Following Ollie's fast and complication-free home birth, Michelle went on to have a long and difficult breastfeeding journey, where she ended up relying predominantly on donor milk. We talk about the practice of breast milk sharing and the community that has sprung up around it. We discuss how giving and receiving donor breast milk through an online platform is a perfect example of bringing traditional practices of village parenting into the current time, and another step in our shared passion for breaking down the unsustainable ideal of nuclear parenting and shifting towards interdependence. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you on this beautiful sunny day? Thanks so much, Indy. I'm so happy to be here and um, I'm, I'm doing well. I've, I've had some, some rest time in the last uh, 24 hours um, from my wonderful and rambunctious two-year-old. So I feel grounded and rested and, and really excited to, to be in conversation with you. So thanks for having me. Amazing. And yeah, you mentioned your two-year-old, but would you like to share about yourself and your family? Yeah, I would. Um, Just before we do get into it, I just, I I would like to first um, just start off by acknowledging the land that I am on right now. I'm on um, Boonwurrung and and Bunurong country um, uh, in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And this is also the land that I birthed on. And um, I just want to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and um, and I guess just to foreshadow that a lot of the things that I feel I might be speaking about today are going to be practices that I'm sure have been in many ways practised on this land for thousands and thousands of years by the elders continuing culture on, on the planet. And so, um, yeah, just wanted to really acknowledge that wisdom and that that, that leadership and, and that, um, yeah, that that. that is still a very strong ongoing and continuing connection that I 
feel as a settler and as, as someone who's, you know, not not Indigenous to this country, it's important to acknowledge and to um, to do what I can to, to sort of elevate um, those voices and stories. So, And I know you do a really great job of, of doing that in, in your commitment to supporting um, the Indigenous midwifery fund too, so, which is awesome. So, yeah, um, so me and my family. So I um, am a first-generation Australian born to um, a migrant uh, family who came from, from Croatia uh, in the 70s. Um, so I have a long lineage of women who have home birthed actually, which I discovered quite late in my pregnancy kind of journey or realised quite late in my pregnancy journey um, and uh, so that I, you know, could draw on for, for kind of spiritual guidance and wisdom, I suppose. Um, and my, I live with my, um, my husband, Chris, um, and who's, who's from Tasmania, from Flinders Island, and my, my two-year-old son, Ollie. Beautiful. Mm. And, yeah, thank you for your little acknowledgement of country there. It's, yeah, really special. And, and would you, yeah, so maybe going back to your pregnancy with Ollie, how did that come about? Was that a planned conception? Yeah, so my journey to pregnancy was quite a little bit of a twisted and turny kind of route. Um, I, I uh, in, in 2017, was, was diagnosed with, polycystic ovaries, polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS. Um, and one of the symptoms of that um, that can present in some women is, is, is a struggle to get pregnant. Um, and so I, that was something that was, uh, at the time when I was diagnosed, I, I wasn't really thinking about pregnancy um, at all, but it was something that was kind of sitting in the back of my mind um, as probably like a little bit of a, a, a wondering or a concern if it was going to be tricky for me to get pregnant when I when I eventually decided that that was something I wanted to do, um, and so and I and you know like like often any um, medical diagnosis can do it kind of it it um it just made me feel a lot of uh, funny things about my body like I felt like my my body wasn't working properly I suppose and I felt very sad about that and so. Um, I actually did a lot of, spent a lot of time um, working through that and um, spent a lot of time in nature actually reconnecting to myself and to my, to just, I guess, being, um, yeah, just being able to sit quietly amongst the trees and um, and uh, it was actually, so the decision to get pregnant actually came very unexpectedly. It was something I'd been sort of thinking about, musing about, was I ready, you know, kind of a, the eternal am I ever going to be ready kind of question and I uh, I had uh, decided to go on a, a vision quest um, which is a quite an ancient rite of passage that is is done by um, many different uh, Indigenous communities around the world um, that so I, I was uh, being, participating in one that was being held here in, in, in Australia and um it was that, so which which was essentially like I guess it boils kind of down to a, a sort of a meditation, a solo meditation time in, in nature over a series of days. And unexpectedly at sort of day three of that time when like kind of my mind had like exhausted itself through overthinking all of the, all, all kinds of things, um, I just had this question come up um, quite clearly to me that was like, yeah, do you want to be a mum? And uh, before my brain could kind of like, sit through the kind of pros and cons of yes or no or whether I wanted to. I just felt this really deep, clear, 
resounding yes and it was so joyful and I um, just like I guess I like just listened to that and so um, I, I um, kind of came home from that experience um, really excited to to try for a, a bubba but also knowing full well that because of my PCOS um, that I may t- it may take me time or maybe difficult to conceive um, I, I was very lucky that it actually was uh, I was yeah very lucky that I didn't it didn't take very long at all so I, I got pregnant within a couple of months of, of making that decision so um, yeah um, it was um, yeah a bit of a long and winding road but I ended up getting there which was it was great mm. yeah mm. and I mean you must have been overjoyed when you found out especially with that kind of um, little you know little piece of fear hanging about because of the um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, but uh, yeah, how were those apart from joyful? How were those first few weeks for you? Were you? Did you have any morning sickness or symptoms come up? Yeah, it's funny because I had mentally prepared for the process of getting pregnant to take so long because it happened so quickly. It was quite a shock. I was sort of like, oh god, okay, this is real. This is happening. Okay, and you know, I was sort of excited and going, oh god, okay, am I ready for this? And but you know, you're on the train and, and you're going. So um, I um. Yeah, I remember feeling very overjoyed, but also like, whoa, okay, here we go. Um, I so um, the first few weeks of my pregnancy, and in fact, the first, like pretty much my entire actual pregnancy journey, was pretty. Um, I, I, I'm going to be one of those people who, and I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you were really unwell during your pregnancy, and maybe you're triggered by people who had a really cruisy pregnancy. But I had a really unsymptomatic pregnancy. I, I, I oftentimes. I almost didn't feel like I was pregnant and it was it because I was just there was no feeling of anything really and um it that I mean that presented its own challenge in that I really had to consciously connect to the experience of being pregnant so I had to really like sometimes remind myself that I was pregnant and because I just didn't feel very different or, or much until the quite late stages of it um so it was almost like I was a little bit disassociated from the experience and I um you know, I, I I think as a result of that, I was reflecting on this, and I think as a result of, of that, I, I, I started to and kind of naturally decided that I wanted to celebrate the transitions between trimesters. I wanted to do something special that would celebrate the kind of movement of from one stage of pregnancy to another. And so um, between the first trimester and the second, I decided to go on a, a silent meditation retreat because I really wanted to, like, spent some time like connecting with my baby and resting and and um that was a really lovely and nourishing experience and then between the second and the third trimester I decided to go on a a, like a a a nature a wild by nature village camp which was like this you know wonderful like um week-long camp with families and parents and singles and um all kinds of people you know being out in nature and kids going out and playing in nature and so that was kind of like me celebrating being in community and being amongst you know kids and stuff as, as a sort of a pregnant person and yeah and I I, I really I, I think that was a really important part of, of my pregnancy journey was was making time for and space to kind of yeah just to consciously in those kinds of celebratory and, and nourishing and nurturing spaces um yeah I think that's so beautiful because I can um, – I have not, not a crazy pregnancy but, you know, fairly straightforward pregnancy and I can – and mm. I didn't show it till you know, quite quite late, I suppose. Um, mm. And I can remember, you know, it feels like you want to celebrate and kind of mm. um, 
like you have this little secret and nobody knows and it's such a special time. <laughs> I think mm. often that urge turns into shopping and preparing and building a nursery mm. and kind of funneling all of that excitement and joy into, you know, pretty, mm. <laughs> I don't know, consumerism, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love that idea of, of choosing mm. to celebrate um, throughout your pregnancy celebrate the pregnancy as it progressed, you know, with really mm. nourishing um, kind of things like that. That's, yeah, that's really beautiful. And mm. yeah. it's such a sacred time, isn't it? And just pausing to really like um, intentionally honour the sacredness of, of that process. And, you know, uh, I think especially when, you know, as pregnant people we're often like a lot of us are working flat out almost up until the day we give birth, you know, we don't often, our culture doesn't give us time or often encourage us to make time to, to pause and reflect and, and take a breather and just like, holy moly, I'm growing a person. Like that's huge. Like it's really, and oh gosh, I have so much like, you know, kind of, I guess as well, like the, the experience of Picos and being so disconnected from my body and so like in grief around my body and its its ability to to just do its thing all the way through to like, I think, pregnancy and, and this honouring of the fact that my body was, was, was giving a growing life. I think it, it was such a reconnecting back into my body of, and, and a, like a real, like, holy moly, look at what my body can kind of do that I, I just, and I think the, the, the slowing down and the yeah, the honouring of that through those types of transition sort of celebrations for me was a really, yeah, was a really beautiful part of like that process of reconnecting to my body and, and just celebrating it, God, because it's just, yeah, it's amazing, just amazing what, what our bodies can do. Mm, totally. yeah. <laughs> and I think actually that's kind of um, a really nice, I think, segue into I guess the decision for that, like my decision to, to home birth um, because I think fundamentally what I what I now realise through this actually having this conversation, it kind of came back to was a real trust in my body's ability to birth um, and, yeah, a, tr- yeah, a trust that I could do it, um, which I think is so countercultural to um, the messaging that I think I felt like I did, you know, often receive um, growing up around pregnancy through our sort of mass media is, you know, of, of birth being this sort of dangerous and scary thing um, that that women or that birthing people, um, you know, there was no control over the process or there was no like, yeah, there was no like, um, a, yeah, it just felt like a scary, dangerous thing that we were not equipped to do without sort of medical support. And so I think this kind of reclaiming of my body also was about, you know, yeah, my body can birth and it's actually a natural process and it's actually something that I have power and and that I can do. Um, and so, yeah. Anyway, I can talk more about yeah, that, but, yeah, mm-hmm. that felt important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, having reached that decision, how did you go about finding a care provider? Yeah, so um, it was through networks of people, actually. Uh, was uh, So it started off through um, at the same time as sort of being pregnant and, and, and I was doing a program called Rewild Fridays, which was all about getting adults back into nature and, and reconnecting to sort of, um, yeah, reconnecting into nature through nature connection practices. And the person, one of the persons facilitating that, um, Claire Dunn, introduced me to Steffi Avanatakis, who um, is a, a doula and, and um, home birth kind of educator and advocate and body worker, who I know has been on this podcast before. So my partner Chris and I went and met Steffi and had a chat with her about, you know, 
I guess, her wisdom around birthing and, and birthing support. And she was just so wonderful and generous in um, providing us with resources and then also introducing us to some possible um, home birthing um, midwives who, who would su- potentially support us. And so we spoke to a, a few of them and we ended up deciding uh, on on to go with um, Lisa and Robbie from Yarra Valley Midwives. And there were a few reasons for that. Um, so the first thing, and I think this is really important to talk about, um, I obviously want, had to be comfortable with the choice of midwives who were supporting me, but it felt really important to me equally that my partner Chris was comfortable with that choice. And he was really supportive of, of my choice to home birth, but he was concerned about safety, which, you know, he was a bit sceptical about the process because he also has been enculturated in, you know, a culture that, that sees home birthing as a bit scary. And so for him it was really important that our midwives um, – really had safety first and foremost. And so um, uh, what I found, what we found when we talked to Lisa and Robbie, um, what we really liked about their approach was that um, they were obviously very supportive and pro um, home birth, but because they had their feet in the sort of the world of, of hospitals um, being both, um, you know, both working as midwives in hospitals as well as running their own private sort of home birthing space, um, they knew kind of both worlds and how to navigate both worlds. And, and I think we both felt confident that, should there be a need to to be in a hospital, like to to be transferred to hospital, that they would, you know, make that call. And I'm sure, you know, obviously all midwives would make that call, but, yeah, there was just that vibe from them that that felt really, um, yeah, that they were like a bridge between kind of both worlds for us in in making that that decision as, and I say this as a parent, like a a first-time parent, I think, my perspective on this feels a bit different as a, if I were to have a a second child, I guess, because I've gone through the process. But when it's your first child, you don't really know what to expect, you have no idea like if you could even advocate for yourself in, in a, say, a, a system that might want to intervene in your, your birth, um, maybe before it's necessary. Um, you know, I just felt to me really important that for that experience I had care providers who really were super aligned with my values and weren't just acting from sort of a, a policy that, you know, um, wasn't personalised to me and, and our relationship and what they knew I could do and, and, and when it was really necessary for me to, to step away. So, um, yeah, so that was really, I think, really important. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was, you know, at the same time I had also enrolled, I'm, um, I live quite close to Sunshine Hospital um, and they have, they're one of the few hospitals in Victoria that have a home birthing program. I'd also enrolled in that program and had been accepted into that program and I was tossing up between whether to go with, uh, with the public sort of subsidised home birthing program or a private home birthing uh, program through through Lisa and, and Robin, and I, I ultimately decided um, to choose the the private home birthing option. Um, and the reason for that was that um, unfortunately, with the hospital home birthing program, you know, I felt like the real clincher for me was if I uh, was there kind of policy around not being able to home birth after like 41 weeks, um, and that just felt to me like if um, I got to that stage of pregnancy, things were still looking okay and there wasn't any medical need for me to be, say, induced or whatever. Um, I just felt like I would have very limited options to, like, you know, at a, the last minute find, like, a home birthing provider if, if I felt like I still wanted to be able to birth at home. And so I just didn't kind of want the stress of that overhanging my whole pregnancy. So, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was a shame because I, I think it would have, you know, been great to support that, like, public health initiative and that I really would love to see more like like I would love to see home birthing become accessible to anyone because 
you know, it is a bit of a price barrier when it's done privately, obviously. So, um, but I, yeah, I think that those hospital programs are really important, but sometimes they're kind of their inclusion criteria are just a little, can be a little bit strict. Um, you know, I, 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 um, you know, I get a lot of the the, re, the systems that the, the medical system is kind of built from my understanding of, like, you know, the policies are probably around, you know, um, standardised care and, and, and not personalised care. And that's just because the, that's the only way that system can kind of really function. And so, yeah, I just felt like I think if I was going again, I, I would consider going through that program only because I feel like I now um, have enough knowledge of my own body and enough knowledge and trust in my ability to birth that I could, you know, um, advocate for myself a bit better in that space, whereas I don't, didn't feel like I could do that as a first-time mum. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, at, at the same time I think what was really, I just felt, yeah, it was really important for me in preparing to home birth as well um, was really mentally preparing for, an eventuality, an op, you know, a possibility that I might need to be transferred to hospital at some point. And I think this was really critical for me to think about and prepare for because I didn't want to feel like I had failed at birthing because I all of a sudden, you know, wasn't home birthing. Um, and also that I felt like a connection enough to my midwives to know that they, they would be making that call to transfer me at a point when they knew it was necessary and not just, you know, so I had, you know, that building that trust with the midwife team that you really feel like they can make that call because, you know, when they and, and the trust that they know when to make that call was really important. And also, um, yeah, that kind of self um, kind of talk around, you know, if I was just so grateful that, I mean, I feel very grateful that those services exist because they're important for, you know, people who need them in, in the birthing process if there is an emergency. So I was very grateful that there was a hospital nearby, but I also felt like, if everything went well, I didn't feel like I wanted to be or needed to be at the hospital. So I think that for me is a really important thing to say because I think when people, when I've ever talked to people about home birth, they often think, oh, you're anti-hospital. And it's like, no, I'm not anti-hospital. I just don't think that, I think the hospital serves an important purpose, but it's not that I need to necessarily birth there if, I, if there's no indication that I need to birth there. So it's kind of shifting the way we think about birth, I suppose, um, for one that's where birthing at home is actually supported as as a standard and hospitals exist for emergencies, you know. Um, so, and it was that was a really important part of educating myself around home birth because I had also internalised those kinds of fears too. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately, mm. the best place for anybody to give birth is is where they feel comfortable. And absolutely. Um, yeah, personally, I think unpacking. You know, I, I didn't have any fear of going to hospital and at all, but I think planning a home birth you know, unpacking that fear of hospital and, mm. you know, really looking at, um, you know, where your comfort level lies and helping to break that down is just yeah. only setting yourself up for success. Absolutely. You know, That's you, absolutely right. Have a less traumatic experience if, if that does end up being necessary. Yeah, totally. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. We might just... Um, keep moving the next of it through the yeah. if that's okay I feel like I could chat to you for hours and maybe we can do that <laughs> no no absolutely let's keep going right. yeah so um the rest of maybe um yeah kind of over the rest of your pregnancy and heading into those final mm. weeks um yeah, yeah how are you feeling and and what sort of things were coming up at that time yeah so the final weeks um were really uh exciting because I was I, 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 my body showed, um, like my, my bump kind of showed quite late. So, but I, so I, you know, like I said, I, I didn't have 
like as much of a connection to being pregnant. But then in those last weeks, I you know got a bump, the baby started to move. Um, I, I was you know starting to feel like oh wow, this is you know really real and and, and happening. And um, and and I I got that sort of instinctual urge to nest and to prepare the birthing space and had a really beautiful time like preparing sort of you know my affirmations and pictures and putting them up around my birthing space so uh yeah so I I decided I really wanted to birth um outside under the trees in my backyard um so I was quite excited to to prepare a space out there um I was birthing in January so I, I kind of thought it would possibly be quite hot um so that kind of obviously was another nice reason to be able to birth outside um ended up settling on the back deck because um it was mozzies were crazy at that time of year in our yard and so I wanted to create like a bit of a cocoon that like yeah and it was just a bit tricky to do that out under the trees so yeah we ended up Chris ended up building it's funny watching both of us like me kind of preparing like all these affirmations and cards and then Chris like physically building this structure around the, the birthing pool, um, you know, that would keep the mosquitoes out. And, yeah, we kind of created this little, like, cocoon. And it was funny because it wasn't something we'd planned to do or anything. It just it just kind of happened. And, and I guess yeah, that's kind of the, the instinct coming out of, of preparing one's birth space. Um, and so, um, yeah, so in terms of, um, yeah, the other thing I want to say was I, I decided to hold, like, a, a baby shower slash blessing way um, with, uh, with like I think it was about a month before I was due um, and just a small one, only 40 of my family and friends. I'm kidding there. I, was super, <laughs> I don't know why I, I was super pregnant. I was, it was like, oh, God, this is ridiculous. I, um, anyway, but, no, it was, it was, it was amazing. I, yeah, 40 of my, my family and friends and we, all women in, in my lineage. Um, and that for me was the moment when I realised, so I had a bit of trickiness in navigating choosing home birth. Um, you know, I just so was was uh, there was a bit of fear in in my sort of community around that choice, um, and so I was feeling a little bit uncertain at times about whether I was making the right decision or whether I'd regret it. Um, and so I guess an important part of me doing that was being like witnessed in this choice by my community and and sort of yeah having them gather like on the place where I was planning to give birth and. Um, it was in that moment that I was looking at my aunties and my grandmothers and I realised um, that, at least on my maternal side, that I actually, my, my grandmother and her mother and so my great-grandmother and, and so on and so forth had been birth, home birthing, you know, since time immemorial and it was actually only the generation prior to mine, like my mum, that had chosen a, a hospital to birth um, when they arrived in Australia. And um, I'm not saying that to, to shame anyone. I think, like you said, everyone has to make that decision for what, they feel safe with but I guess I felt emboldened by um, my choice to home birth because I felt like I was yeah con continuing this kind of ancestral women's practice that my family had done and, and that my the spirits of my my grandmother's past were kind of there um with me so that was a really important realization for me to have I think that yeah um yeah that I was I was continuing that and um yeah and that I was tapping into their wisdom um so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and um, where were you when you went into labour and how did things get started for you? Yeah. So um, it was the evening before the hottest day of the summer. So um, I, I started to go into labour on the 3rd of January at about like 9.30 p.m. in the evening. 
Um, and then, and I was like, I think I said to myself, oh, of course he's going to, you know, baby's going to come on like the hottest day of the year. It was going to be forecast the next day to be like 43 degrees. And I was like, oh gosh, okay. That's going to be fun to be laboring in that. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I started to feel, uh, my water started to break, break at around 9.30 PM. So of course I got on the phone to the midwives and, um, Lisa said to me, okay, what I want you to do is to go to bed, try and get some rest. You know, this could still be another 24, 48 hours. And so, of course, I, I tried to do that, but I was there was just adrenaline crossing through my body because I thought I'd be meeting my baby soon. So I think I got about like an hour of sleep, um, and but I was just sort of too excited and and things um, to sort of rest really properly. And um, I know I, uh, we started timing my contractions at about the sort of 3:30 a.m. mark, and um, they, things started to intensify a bit. I was starting to feel, um, you know, things. You know, cramping and, and stronger sort of feelings and so I got on the phone to Lisa and, and she sort of told me uh what did I say I told you to just relax and not be timing it <laughs> which is very wise of her part but I was too excited to not um she said um all right if things are starting to feel like they're intensifying you know um what I want you to do is to set up the birth pool fill up the birth pool and get into the pool and just start to breathe through it you know and and so we began to do that and as soon as I hopped into the pool things started to get really serious like I got the real urge to start pushing and um so I we called Lisa and I think it kind of came as a shock to them because a I so I was a first time mum and and I'm starting to go into labor a couple of days earlier than my due date which I say in inverted commas um you know um uh, so earlier than kind of like the guest date of when I would give birth and then also um yeah as a first time mum I think generally speaking things don't often progress as quickly as you might you know they might Otherwise, so I think Lisa and Robbie were thinking they had time, whereas actually, like, no, baby was coming. And so <laughs> we called them at sort of 4, 5.30 or something and where I was starting to, like, want to, you know, bear down and push. And um, they said, all right, we're getting in the car. Just you need to, like, slow things down, Michelle. I, and I really distinctly remember Lisa saying to me, Michelle, if you, if you start pushing, baby's going to come before we get there and you'll have to call an ambulance. And you, I know you don't want to do that, so you just need to, <laughs> need to slow down. And uh, so... Trying not to push when your body is telling you to push uh, is, is was really, really difficult. And so I just remember Chris, my partner, looking at me. Every time a contraction would kind of come, he'd, he'd say, Michelle, look at me. And I'd look at him straight in the eye and be like, breathe, breathe, breathe. And I just, gosh, he was so great um, at that point. Um, and uh, so he was, yeah, so baby was starting, he was really in my back during most of the labour. So it was pushing really, really hard against my back. And so... Um, Lisa and Robbie, while they're on the freeway, they stayed on the phone the whole time coaching sort of me through while I was sort of in this process. And they said to Chris, you know, you might want to go out and get Michelle a TENS machine. Um, that might help. I hadn't got one before this. And I said, no, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> so I birthed without, without any, uh, any uh, pain, I suppose, management other than some hot water on my back and some pushing on my back, um, which um, when the midwives arrived, they sort of started to really press on my back to help kind of counter that pushing that um that baby was doing so um uh yeah so that kind of 45 minutes while we were waiting for them to get there was was really tough of, of trying to just sort of slow things down um but I think it was really good too because it, it kind of yeah it really made sure that I was not trying to rush things that I was really focused on relaxing and and it you know I think got me um hopefully like to a point where I was feeling really um yeah, like I wasn't tensing up and, uh, you know, as much as I might otherwise have been. So Lisa and Robbie arrived and then kind of flurried, kind of got things all set up they needed to set up and then 
you know, um, I remember the, the piece of advice that kind of came pretty early on in um, when they arrived that was just so critical and crucial to my birth um, was Lisa told me to to reach in and to try to feel for baby's head. Um, and she said it'll feel like a, like a cricket ball. It's quite hard, you know, and um, and so I did that and it just, it, it again, like I guess this theme kind of keeps coming up in my story of this kind of reconnecting to my body of like, it just, it connected me into the process because I could feel him coming down like the birthing kind of canal as, you know, with each contraction and it connected me to the process so beautifully that it felt very motivating. So I felt like, because I could feel him moving and I could be almost like I was guiding him out that, um, and I felt like it was progressing. It just, it, it enabled me to pace myself and it just made me feel like I could do it, you know. Um so that was that was a really important and beautiful part, um, and and they were so good. Like um, the midwives were, you know, they were there, and I, I mean, they talked to me a lot about this in preparing for the birth. But you know, they created this kind of cocoon where it really was me and Chris and, and Ollie um, in the process, and they were sort of around and supporting and there if I needed them. But they weren't sort of there was no real they weren't intervening in much unless I really needed it uh, and or to sort of check that you know baby's heart rate was was stable and okay. So. You know, it was really more like holding, like sort of of, and that you know them knowing that I could do it and holding and encouraging me and Chris to just you know to be in the moment with it. So um, yeah, and then about forty five minutes after they got there, um, Ollie's head popped out. <laughs> so he came very quickly into the world. Um, he um, yeah, I remember being a bit nervous about like you know the kind of crowning because I'd read that that was a really painful part of the process but um I really just focused on really relaxing and um you know my affirmations of just like yeah I think I had one affirmation like sploosh of just like this sense of like being in water and just like yeah just being fully like relaxed and and I think that really helped me kind of just to not tense up at that point um and and I think it must have worked because I, I didn't I didn't get any tearing so that was really wonderful um I also did a bunch of perineal stretching before um, in preparing for pregnancy, which I think made a big difference too. So definitely advocate for, for that um, for that process. Um, yeah, and then once his head was out, it almost was like this part of me was like, okay, the hard bit's done now, so I can like the rest will be okay. So um, um, and so uh, yeah, I uh, think it was one more contraction and then he was fully out and um, he because he was in my back, he sort of I couldn't I couldn't lean back to catch him myself. I was sort of on like on my hands and knees almost. Um, and so he uh, was born behind me, and Lisa passed him over to me, and I just remember looking at him, going, "Oh my goodness, that I can't believe that 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 little person just came out of my body." And I was yeah, it's very overwhelming and beautiful. Um, yeah, so gorgeous. And we you were still in the water to birth him. Yeah, I stayed in the water the whole time, and it was such it was uh, it was such a beautiful like it just I mean I water was a really big part of my pregnancy. I I swam a lot um, while I was pregnant. Um, I took a lot of baths, and so it just felt like a really natural extension that that would be part of the birth, and it was it just it was felt so supportive. And you know, Chris, my husband's a, a diver and is a water baby too, so he you know was you know. Um, so it just felt like really important that that was a part of the birthing process and yeah I, I was lucky that I spent the entire time yeah pretty much in the water and it was really sort of yeah very supportive so yeah but I when I was trying to you know the, after the really beautiful bonding time that, that I think you know is that I had after he was Ollie was 
firstborn and before I had to sort of move into the, uh, the birthing the placenta. Um, yeah, I had to kind of step out of the pool for that because I just the placenta wasn't wasn't coming. Um, yeah, I had to birth that in the uh, standing up sort of outside of the pool um, for whatever reason. It didn't want to come while I was in the pool. So, yeah. But um, and, I guess and- something else that just felt really, really great uh, about that whole process uh, of and, and that, especially that, that, that sort of immediate few hours postpartum where you're really obviously overwhelmed with, with joy and love around the birth of one's baby. Um, I shouldn't say that. I should say, well, I was overwhelmed with joy and love for my baby because I know not everyone has those, those uh, feelings. But um, uh, what I felt really was so great about that, being at home for that was that I was in my own space where I, you know, felt comfortable and knew, you know, the environment. And um, the other thing, I guess, is that Lisa and Robbie, I mean, as they could they could see that Ollie was healthy and well. He was pink. He was, you know, sort of shouting and, you know, he was moving around and, and looked quite, you know, happy and stuff. Um, so they didn't really need to – I had this kind of worry that they would want to, you know, take him and do these tests and stuff before, you know, and – well, not worry, I shouldn't say, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, – there was, they just, they created this sense of ample space for me, just me, Chris and Ollie to bond. Um, and it was so like relaxed and the, the whole space was just so relaxed and nurturing. Like there wasn't this sense of needing to do any like testing or anything until the next day. Like um, it was just, it was just, I was just able to be in the moment with my new baby. And that was just such a gift. I think it was really, really beautiful. And so we really took our time with like letting Ollie like do, you know, the baby newborn baby crawl to, to, to latch onto the breast and, um, you know, um, you know, the, the disconnection from his placenta, like we, we, you know, waited a couple of hours until, you know, all that blood was gone before we, um, we, before we disconnected him from his placenta, which we used, uh, we burnt, we used fire to um, quarter, quarter, I think it's cauterized the cord. Um, yeah, so we used candles and, and burnt through the cord, which took, you know, five or so minutes, which was just, again, a lovely, like, relaxed and gentle-paced process. Um, yeah, so it was just really, really beautiful and special and, yeah, just everything that I could have ever wished for in a birth. So, so amazing. <laughs> how, how many, how fast was the birth altogether? How long was it? So I, I guess my waters broke at 9.30 p.m. Um, on the 3rd and he was born at, like, quarter past 10 on the 4th in the morning. So, like, we're 12 hours all up. But um, I'm always curious to know if, like, if I didn't have to, like, yeah, well, well, he would have possibly come quicker if I wasn't waiting to push um, for that hour or whatever it was. Um, So, yeah, might have been a little bit quicker than that. So I felt like active labour was only a couple of hours, though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it was very quick, particularly for much quicker than I kind of expected it even to be for as a first-time mum. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, and coming before your due date as well. I think. Yeah, it was all such a surprise. <laughs> yeah, home births or Robbie and Leslie, lots of home births. Midwives do a really good job of like normal, normalizing um, going kind of post dates with a first pregnancy as, as yes. just being to be expected and, yes. and that sort of thing. So yeah, it must have been. I mean, I was surprised even to go into labor on my due date. So it must have been yeah. a little bit of a surprise to go into labor earlier. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I mean it's great because I, I yeah I guess in some ways 
I was spared the stress of being post, you know, the due date and worrying about when he would come in some ways, which is funny because that obviously was something I that meant I didn't go with the Sunshine Home Birthing Program because I was worried, you know, what would happen if he was 41 weeks post or whatever. So, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, something that maybe the universe planned that uh, I didn't have to worry about that. So I was lucky. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, it sounds like the first first few hours with him and bonding as a family were really blissful and super taken beautiful care of. Um, and so special. Obviously an amazing way to set up for, mm. for you know, mm. for a successful breastfeeding journey and, and a mm. year postpartum. But how mm. were the next few weeks as you went on to kind of continue breastfeeding and, and navigating postpartum? Mm. Yeah, so... The next few weeks were the toughest, I think, of my life. Um, I had a pretty challenging beginning to breastfeeding. Um, uh, Ollie seemed to latch fine, and I was, I was, so I was very, I should say, I was very committed to to breastfeeding. I really wanted him to be exclusively breastfed for the first six weeks, and you know, even the first six months if I could. I really wanted to give it a proper go, and um, so I was, yeah, very determined. Um, and he latched fine from the looks of things but he would feed you know constantly as newborns are want to do and he uh, just kept losing weight um and we kind of got to the sort of 10% birth weight loss point and um realized that we had we had to do something because he just yeah wasn't wasn't kind of wasn't bouncing back from that um and so sort of uh at the same time of figuring out what was actually going on, we realised we had to, had to do something to get him to start gaining weight. And so um, Lisa told me I had sort of two options. Um, I could give him formula or I could give him donor breast milk. And um, I guess I just felt like because he was so little and, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I just felt, felt to me important that he received breast milk. And so I... Yeah, made the decision to try supplementing with with donor breast milk, and gosh, I'm glad I did because it was it was such an amazing thing to give him, and also it connected me to this community of of birthing people who you know, breastfeeding people who are just um, incredible and generous and so supportive of me continuing to try with you know giving him breast milk and breastfeeding. So. Yeah, we, we started supplementing him at, at, I think, one week old with donor breast milk. Um, we we, we uh, I, I joined a group on Facebook called Human Milk for Human Babies um, and it's just a Facebook group where it's all informal and, and um, women, you know, who are, who are breastfeeding, who have excess supply, um, post to offer to, to women who, you know, don't or any parents actually um, who, who, um, who, who don't have enough, milk for their babies so I would uh, yeah drive around Melbourne and outside of Melbourne um collecting litres of, of breast milk from from people all around and um yeah it was um I just met I met some really wonderful people through that process um I had people who contacted me and also through the ABA the Australian Breastfeeding Association offering to pump to help me um we to build up my stash I suppose and um yeah, just the generosity really was I was so taken aback by and, and just it was such a, a great thing to be connected into postpartum. Um, yeah, and Ollie thrived on it. He gained, like, weight like you wouldn't believe and was a happy, healthy little bubba. And I think uh, when I uh, 
he so he was on donor breast milk supplements up until he was one actually so with that first whole first year he he um he had donor breast milk and um i think at last count when i went back and had a look i think he'd received milk from 31 different mums around melbourne so yeah i was just like wow that's an amazing amount of biomes to be uh exposed to <laughs> for his developing gut I thought that was, it was great so um but yeah it was funny too because I, I mean I felt like I, the other thing I want to say is that um I, I felt like I did have to navigate my own internalized and again perceived stigma around receiving um donor breast milk you know again there was concerns voiced to me around safety you know what if the mum has an infection or if the milk isn't stored properly or whatever and um you know, that was a fear I also held. But I think that, um, you know, what I found, um, the reality of that really uh, was that um, all of the people who donated to me were breastfeeding their own children. Um, they all, like, were people who were very vigilant in the way they stored their milk and, and knew, like, a lot about it. They'd educated themselves. They were all doing it because they wanted to be, you know, generous and give and support other babies. Um, and so, um, you know, I did ask for some you know, in the early stages when I was really nervous about it, I did ask for people's blood results and that is something that, that people are happy to do um, to make sure that, you know, they don't have any STIs or whatever. And um, But I just, yeah, I think that it was really, uh, it, it's, yeah, donor breast milk I think is much less of a risk than it may be seen to be by people. Um, and I think it's actually just the, not only this the complete opposite of that, it is an absolutely wonderful gift and if it's something that you're, wondering about or considering um, I really would encourage you to have a look into it because it's um if anyone listening because it's really um it's a beautiful community of people who are really just trying to get more babies to be given breast milk which we know is really great for their development so yeah so so amazing and when you were saying that about um having received milk from 31 different breastfeeding people that's just incredible and you think in you know, Indigenous communities, it was so, so common to share breastfeeding and, mm. um, and to, you know, like, you know, wet nursing and, and sharing mm. between families and that kind of thing. Mm. And, and just to think it's, you know, like a little modern kind of version of that and that we're creating those little webs of connection and mm. community to be able to share, share things the way that they may have and, and in lots of instances certainly were shared um, you know, mm. back in times when people parented as a village, so Absolutely. really beautiful Absolutely. and and I yeah I I do hear that yeah I can really see that there would have been some things for you to overcome within mm. that as there always is when we reject the kind of what goes with just being mm. a family which is self sufficient and insistent mm. on being on not relying on other people and um, yeah. Yeah, it takes courage to step outside of that and choose choose community. So, mm. yeah, Thanks, amazing. Indeed, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Absolutely, it was a choice to be supported by a community and to receive that help. And I think that's been a big lesson of of the uh, parenting journey is how important. You know, it's a really. I think I I wrote an article about about my uh, donor breast milk. Um, journey for the ABA, the Australian Breastfeeding Associations magazine. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think I wrote something in there like, um, you know, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, you know, it's an old adage, but um, it never has the breakdown of the village been more, for me at least in my experience, never has the breakdown of the village been more, you know, sort of 
prominent than in breastfeeding. I think it does take a village to, to support a woman to breastfeed successfully. You know, that's, I guess, why the Australian Breastfeeding Association exists because it's not, I mean, I, I guess, and this is something that if I were to have my time again when, you know, being pregnant, I, I think I would have spent a little bit more time sort of thinking about and, and preparing for a breastfeeding journey and, and maybe less time obsessing over labour, which is so funny because labour's over in like, you know, a couple of days at most and um, breastfeeding you, you do for possibly a few years if you're, you know, lucky enough to be able to do that. So, um, you know, it's not, a, I thought it was a skill I'd just, you know, I'd pick it up, um, but it actually takes a lot of work and it takes persistence and it takes dedication and it, it takes so much from like, you know, out of you in those early days that you, you know, I can see why so many People don't persist with breastfeeding if you're if you're a don't have that support and b if you have a bit of a difficult journey and 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 don't have yeah don't have necessarily maybe as strong a commitment to it as as I say I did um, I, I probably pushed myself a little too hard um, in that in that regard but I don't regret it but um at all but um and I'm I'm still breastfeeding to this day which is like I feel really um proud of actually um because I didn't know if I would be able to um so yeah um. It's uh, it's just breastfeeding is such an important and under I think under discussed part of the journey um, in the prenatal yeah preparation for for, for being a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. I was just thinking when you were saying that that there's so much kind of normalization at the well, there's so much guilt over over anything that that you mm. do in motherhood, particularly mm-hmm. anything that's not the the standard, the normal um, kind of accepted thing to do. And mm-hmm. I think there's still so much guilt for people who choose not to breastfeed or find that they, they can't mm-hmm. breastfeed or they can't exclusively mm-hmm. breastfeed. And and the result of that at the moment is is a normalisation of formula feeding and a, mm-hmm. you know, kind of fed is best approach, which, which is true. Fed is absolutely best, but there's not, you know, it's interesting that the – yeah, the result is is a normalisation of formula feeding, not mm. a normalisation of of sharing the burden of breastfeeding and mm. and um and looking at other options when yeah um yeah sharing donor milk is is a yes. super super amazing option. I've donated quite a lot of milk through Human Milk for Human Babies because I was mm. very lucky to have um you know an oversupply of milk for a long mm. time. So and yeah. it felt like such a special gift to give and yeah I do I want to add in here just in case there is anybody who's listening and and still um is feeling like a bit of discomfort or fear around um receiving donor milk obviously I can't allay all of those because there's no um kind of standardization or kind of control Mm. over Mm. over something yeah it's unregulated but um when I like I donated milk and like you were saying you know, I think the type of person who's willing to go out of their way to express milk, store it, package it up, um, advertise it somewhere and coordinate with multiple other people to be able to get it to them, you know, in frozen condition is, is not somebody who's out to cause harm or who's mm. who's not going to be putting in the effort into storing it well. Like it, it's a proactive mm. gift of time and energy to do that. So um, 100%. That is such a beautiful, that's a really important message. I really wish that that was said more often to more people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that is, and thank you for your gift because it really does change lives. Yeah, oh, I think so. Donate a breast milk. Yeah. I know. And, you know, that's the thing, like, as well, I mean, 
the thing that I kind of came to, you know, there's risk in every choice one makes, you know, there's a risk when you formula feed that if you don't sterilise the bottles properly, the baby will get unwell. Like, I mean, there's a risk in everything, but it's about, you know, choosing, you know, the risks are so low, like, you know, and, and um, yeah, like you say, there's, um, it's just, it's, yeah, people make such a beautiful commitment and, and do so with intention. And, and I, I just overwhelmingly found when I felt that fear, when I, when I felt that fear or anxiety, it, you know, when you meet people and you see them and you see what their, their gift they've done, you just, you can't, yeah, I think those anxieties and fears go away. I think fears exist when we, you know, when we aren't confronted with the reality of, of, of things and then we let our minds kind of sometimes overtake um, and, and, you know, create stories and things. So, I, I certainly didn't, yeah, feel at any point in my donor breast milk journey, which was sort of significant, um, uh, and then met a lot of different people that I, I never felt at any point that um, uh, that I felt, yeah, unsafe or that my baby is unsafe. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's really. Yeah. I think it should definitely be part of the picture, and and I think as well, it's a thing. Like I think it's about. I think I'm all about any birthing person having access to information and and balanced information around every choice. And that's something that the, my midwives were so good at is they never sort of said to me, you should do this or you should do that. It was like, these are your options. This is the evidence behind each option. You know, you have to choose what's right for you. And and I think that I just wish that every person, you know, who was who was birthing had that um, presented to them and, and, and felt comfortable to make those choices for themselves. And, yeah. Oh, absolutely, because I feel, you know, I mean, I can't say this for certain, but I feel pretty confident in saying that um, midwives in the hospital system who would be proactive about suggesting donor milk as an alternative to formula would be um, mm. very, very rare, if not, um, you know, mm. possibly not happening at all. Certainly not for babies born. I know for premature babies it's something that, you know, often hospitals have donor milk banks and things, and so I think that's possibly the, the part of the sort of hospital picture where, where donor breast milk is probably, but it's, you know, very strictly kind of controlled in that environment. So, um, but, yeah, I'd, I reckon if you had a healthy term baby and were having trouble breastfeeding, that, that, you know, yeah, probably, yeah, whether it would be suggested to you or not, I don't, I don't really know. But, yeah, maybe not not as regularly as it maybe should be. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, we talked a little bit just before we started um just before we started the interview about, the, you know, you sort of being at a point of considering whether or not you would, mm. whether, you were, whether or not you'd have another pregnancy, another baby, mm. would you like to speak a little bit about to kind of what that decision looks like for you and what sort of things you're considering if you're comfortable? Mm. Yeah. It's, um, geez, new babies are hard, so... <laughs> <laughs> I've had I've been fortunate enough to be blessed with a not very good sleeper so and when I say that I mean a normal sleeper who um you know he just is a very he's a wakeful kind of child and um so uh I think that you know the decision around having a second is sort of really I think has to be like what we're factoring in is you know rest and and when when are we going to be at a point if we're ever going to be at a point soon where we feel rested enough to take on what is, you know, pregnancy and postpartum is, is a considerable energy investment. And so, um, yeah, we want to feel like we can really commit to that with um, as much energy as, as at least as we, um, yeah, put into our first kind of journey. So, but that may not be very realistic. So I don't, I, I, what I do, what I do know is that I, I gave myself this 
year, so Ollie's um, second year of life, um, I gave myself this year off making that decision. I just really wanted to, I think I found the first year of, of postpartum really tough, um, probably because of all the things I've talked about with the breastfeeding and, you know, all that stuff. I, I and you know, change in one's identity and all those things that, that happen when you, um, you know, suddenly become, <laughs> uh, yeah, a parent. Um, and so I really wanted to make sure this year was about as much as possible about replenishing and refilling up my cup um, as a, as a, yeah, as a person. So I actually haven't put a huge amount of thought into it yet. Um, but what I do know is that um, my first decision to get pregnant wasn't a rational one. It wasn't like, okay, let's sit here and go through a pros and cons list and, and figure out if this is the right choice. It was a instinctual choice that came through me slowing down, sitting with myself and um, letting letting the, my mind kind of um, not interfere too much with that choice. Um, and so I think that in, in making the decision to, to have a second child, I, I would want to be um, kind of recreating those conditions. So really just like sitting with it um, out in nature and figuring out, you know, just listening to what feels in, in, instinctual and right for me and, and my, my family. So watch this space, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure is probably the answer yet. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I yeah. think it's so important kind of what you've spoken about, um, about considering whether whether you're going to be able to get enough rest and consider whether, yeah, yeah. yeah again, I mean, there's a lot about birth and pregnancy and parenthood that's normalised, which shouldn't be, and, and one of those mm. massive things is rest and mm. recovery. Yeah. And particularly mm -hmm. I find in kind of alternative attachment-based parenting groups there's a lot of normalization mm. of just really extreme conditions of sleep deprivation and yeah, right. getting space from your children and yeah. yeah like I'm you know I would I'd say I am you know pretty attachment-based parenting but mm. I also still struggle and like yeah. as a single parent and I'm triggered by um people you know who are kind of <laughs> Yeah, like really stigmatizing any kind of sleep training or any kind of setting boundaries with children because we don't live in a village. And mm -hmm. um, so if you can't get the support to be able to make whatever circumstance you have and however many children you have and however mm -hmm. they choose to sleep, um, you know, possible for you to do without being pushed to your extreme limits, then yeah, like yeah. considering whether or not it's you know, some, whether having another child is something you want to do is a really brave and, um, mm. like, that's self-care to me. No, that's, I mean, you're so right, Indy, and I think that's been a real big, a really big realisation through this, yeah, first child parenting process is, you know, we are lucky to have my my family kind of close by, but even still, you know, um, you know my, my, my parents work and, you know, they're not as, you know, yeah, there's reasons that, like, even with a bit of a village around, it's still hard, you know, and I can only, uh, you know, imagine with, you know, for a lot of mums in my mum's group have family interstate or for single parents or whatever. It's, 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 yeah, it's really, I just, we weren't, I don't think, biologically wired to, to raise children in this kind of way where we're, yeah, either on our own or in a nuclear family or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so that has played a big part in my 
wondering, I think, around second child is, yeah, um, or, or, or I guess I'm wondering around what would I, what would I, I guess the question that I'm probably going to be sitting with um, over the next little while is what would I need around me in terms of support systems to make a second child feel possible in terms of, yeah, in a way that was felt nurturing enough and so and can I create that for myself um yeah and that's a very yeah whether that is being more explicit around the kind of support and care I need from friends and family and obviously in a way that they're willing to provide um of it or you know whether I have the privilege of being able to sort of pay for that kind of care or whatever like yeah just I think that question and sitting with that question of of really like what does the village look like for me is it possible um, um, and, um, yeah, that sort of informing whether a second child would actually just take me more to my edges than I feel I am possible, it feels possible or not, um, I think it's going to be a, a really important part of our decision-making process, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I've, mm. I've spoken um, and shared this little comment once before on the podcast, but I feel like it's really relevant in this conversation, which is... Um, Kind of this idea of uh, which I which I use a fair bit with parenting of instead of asking what do I want or what do I want things to look like, but asking what does this moment require and or you know you know as you're saying what would what would I require to be able to do, to make to do that and make it um, you know mm. work for me and and meet my needs and I think mm. that's so much more helpful rather than asking what do I want do I want another baby or do I yeah you know do I want my family to look like this mm. okay, what do I actually require and what does what does the moment require mm. or what does what does that point in time and that journey require to be able to make it okay for me and yeah and that, that's right. like yeah that sets you up to be able to make changes and to problem solve and mm. reach out for help and and build your networks and your village rather than um I guess setting you up to feel like either you can or you can't and yes having an emotional reaction either way <laughs> absolutely well it's not yeah it's as you say it's like a it's not a black and white kind of yeah I, I 100% agree <laughs> yeah yeah I think mm. you're right yeah yeah well good luck with um mm. you know pondering that question and um making a decision around that I'm sure I'm mm. yeah feel certain having spoken to you that you're gonna make a beautiful decision and um that your family mm. will be exactly as it needs to be either way Thank you, Indy. It's been so lovely to chat with you and to share this time together. Thank you so much for, yeah, for providing a space for these types of stories to be told and heard. I think it's something I would have loved to have um, had when I was navigating that sort of journey of choosing whether to home birth and, and, and making choices about, yeah, more my postpartum stuff. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Michelle. I apologize for my snuffly voice um, at the beginning and the end. I'm a bit unwell this week. I'll bring you episodes as I am able to over the next month, but I do have a long holiday planned and I'll continue to prioritize rest as needed. So I might not have an episode every single week. You can head over and follow me on Instagram or click subscribe on your podcast app to be notified when a new episode is published. Bye.